You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Sports have many comparisons to war. While those who have been in combat will tell us there really is no comparison, the basic goals of sports are similar to those of war without the desire of killing your opponent. I guess there's a few exceptions like Yankees and Red Sox, Michigan and Ohio State, or Raiders and pretty much anybody else. In fact, I would bet that most soldiers, sailors, Marines, etc., while being ready for that part of combat, actually hope the conflict can be resolved without killing another human being, even when the opponent is contemplating the same outcome for you. Football is especially compared often to war in terminology, blitz, bomb, the trenches, formations. Even the red zone are all terms that are popular in football that originated in combat. So it's only appropriate that we devote today's episode of Sports Connections to a great new book about an American war hero. Rob Lofthouse has written a book on the heroic life of his cousin, Gordon Whitman, signed up for World War II before graduating from high school in 1944. He led many, he led many years his senior into some of the most famous battles in that war later commanded a racially segregated unit in Korea and one of the highest ranking officers killed in Vietnam. A chapter in this book is devoted entirely to commendations he received. This book is well-written, gripping, and inspiring. So Rob, welcome to Sports Connections. Thanks for having me, David. So so let's start with the, the obvious question. What inspired you to write this book? Um, I had been doing uh, family genealogy for for several years uh, after taking that over from my mother, and and as I as I dug into the family and, and learned more about uh, Gordon Lippman, uh, who's my first cousin, uh, I I got intrigued about his life story, about his accomplishments, um, where he came from, and and where he ended up, and and you know one thing just led to another, and and. Uh, I started writing. Okay, and now I read that you, that you knew Gordon. Obviously, he's your cousin, but that you had you had spent you had met him. You had spent some time with him, not a lot of the time uh, in the states while you were growing up, because he was basically off in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. How much of his story did you know before embarking on this project? I knew that he was a, a combat veteran. I knew that he had served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, and that he was uh, uh, KIA in Vietnam. Um, and I had had met him and his family, uh, so I got to know them a little bit. Um, everyone I spoke with uh, in, in our family, in our extended family that knew him, or had any interaction with him, uh, was very impressed and, and considered him to be a saint. Uh, so as I, I, I continued to do my genealogical research and, and as I continued to, to uh, uh, put snippets of, of the storyline together, um, it, it just became obvious to me that this was a story that I wanted to write. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've read the book, obviously, and, I, and it just... The first part of it's inspiring, and then it just keeps building on that. Every time you turn around, there's another story that, that makes the reader think, man, I wish I had gotten to know this guy. What was more interesting for you, digging through the history uh, to, to find the details or figuring out the best way to write those details 
without sounding like a homer. And by that, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a sports writer and I cover a lot of uh, sporting events for teams that, that I'm a fan of. And it's one of the biggest challenges is not sounding like a homer when the team I'm rooting for is doing well. So what, which was harder or which was more interesting finding out the information or figuring out a way to write it without sounding like a homer. As I, as I got started on the project, um, I, I was collaborating uh, very heavily with Mike Lippman, uh, his son, and uh, he shared with me uh, Gordon's service record. So I had his timeline uh, from the, the day he joined the Army to, to the day he, he passed. And as I laid out that timeline and, and, and uh became more familiar with what he had accomplished and, and, uh, and where, he, uh, where he served around the world, um, I realized that I needed to fill in some gaps. And, and I thought the best way to fill in the gaps would be to do research on the combats and the wars uh, that he was engaged in. So a lot of it was, was historical research just Refamiliarizing myself with with the battles in World War II, and and uh, before I started this project, I didn't know anything about Operation Dragoon, uh, which was considered the second D-Day in in southern France. Um, so I learned a tremendous amount about that engagement, as well as as the the unit that Gordon served in during World War II, and then subsequently the the uh, the other units he served in. Um, served with in, in Korea and in Vietnam. So I, I plugged in the gaps by, by uh, doing the historical research. And so I educated myself in the process, which was, was kind of the, the, uh, the side benefit of this whole. Rob, I think you've done an excellent job of retelling well-known national stories while weaving in specific details of Gordon's involvement. How difficult was that to, you know, as I've heard it described, go from a 30,000 foot description to a in the weeds description. How hard was that? Um, not at all because uh, not, not, not hard at all because um, for uh, the battle of the bulge, for example, I had, I had the after action report that he wrote himself uh, on his <laughs> units engagement. Yeah. Um, so I was able to take a lot of that material and integrate it with, um, with the, the, the Battle of the Bulge story. I had also written, uh, or excuse me, I also read um, another after-action report written about the same engagement from a, a different officer's perspective. So it was easy to tie those two together. Um, and, and that's, I think, the Battle of the Bulge is probably the, the, the single uh, most in-depth part of, of the whole book uh, and for, for that reason. Um, but, but as I went through the book and, and, and developed the storyline, it was, um, it was fun. It was engaging because it, it, it intrigued me to do more research and to, uh, and to, uh, uh, make sure that, that whatever I was putting into the book, into the text, uh, was factual, uh, and that it was accurate. And I took, uh, took the liberty several times to, um, reach out to the, the uh, uh, gentleman who, who maintains the, the 517th Parachute Infantry Regiment's 
website um, and is sort of their de facto uh, historian. Um, the 24th Infantry Regiment's uh, historian, and then the 1st Infantry uh, uh, historical records. And, and I, I frequently reached out to those people and, and asked them to read my text and validate it and make sure mm -hmm. that, that I wasn't saying anything inaccurate or, or out of line. So that helped me uh, keep grounded and, and keep the, the whole storyline within the, the, the proper context of, of what actually took place. Now, you served as well, and thank you for your service, but I, I believe you did not see combat. Is that correct? That is correct. I was in the Marine Corps um, Air Wing, and I spent most of my, my service uh, stateside. Uh, Rob, I know that you served in the Marines, but you didn't see combat. How much were you inspired as a Marine by his example? Because if, whether you whether you sign up as a in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, uh, my nephew is going in the Coast Guard any day now. When you sign up, you know there is a chance for combat, and you know there is a chance that you might have to uh, put your life on the line in that. How inspired were you as a Marine by his example? Um. So it, it's interesting. I had met him um, four years before I joined the Marine Corps, and and my my decision to join the Marine Corps um, didn't take Gordon into into consideration at all. I uh, I was focused entirely on what I wanted to do with my life and how I wanted to take the next next step in my life. Um, and I was impressed with, with what I had seen about the Marine Corps and about the Marines that I had known. Um, so I, 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 I took that leap of faith on my own, basically, uh, wanting to, um, wanted to do my service for the country and, and, and uh, fulfill that obligation. Um, had I known Gordon better uh, when I was 15 years old, um, in, in hindsight, I, I think I probably would have performed better in, as a Marine uh, because I would have been inspired by, by his life story if I had known it at the time. Um, when, I, when I look back on those two, uh, those two events, my, my uh, meeting with him and then the, the, my own service uh, in the Marine Corps, um, I realized that there's so much that I left on the table personally because I didn't um, I didn't fully appreciate what I was signing up for uh, at the time. Um, if I had known what I know now about his history and his legacy, um, I would have I, I certainly would have looked at it a lot differently and, and probably would have committed myself a lot stronger through that process. And that's an interesting way of looking at it. I want to I want to kind of look at it differently. That you you may have done things differently had you known this story then, but you did still serve. You still had a, a you know your time with the Marines. You still have that. And I'm I'm told that once a Marine, always a Marine. And somebody walks up to you and doesn't know you and says, "Oorah, you know what to say." <laughs> so how does his story now? With, with your own personal history, how does that story, that story inspire you? 
um, you know, he, he did so many things so well. And, and there's a, a section in the book where I, I talk about a quote that, that Winston Churchill made during World War II. Um, and and it, it basically uh, boils down to doing the right thing. And, and uh, that's what I see in his life. And, and uh, as you read through this text, I think I think that comes out. Uh, the people that have reviewed the book uh, have commented on that several times. Um, he he knew what the right thing to do was, and he did the right thing. And and uh, uh, sometimes that's the hard thing to do. And and yeah. uh, so when I, when I look through his life uh, and uh, and think about what inspires me, that's it. He he just. He knew instinctively uh, how to conduct himself in in battle and and uh, in between the wars in in peacetime. Uh, took excellent care of his family. Uh, you know he um, uh, he's just a, a, an inspiration. And you know as as my cousins tell me today, he was a saint. That's cool. I, I've obviously been able to read the book. Uh, before it came out, uh, and it is now out, and we'll talk about where people can get it here in a second. There are some some of my favorite stories in this book, and I jotted down some notes. I'm going to give you a chance to talk about yours in a second, but I, as the host of the show, I get to ask the questions first. So let's talk about some of my favorite. And um, the first one I want to talk about, and we'll kind of do them in chronological order, the submarine trip across the Atlantic when he was heading toward combat, World War II was going on, and he knew that after they were, you know, after they landed uh, in, and he didn't know where they were going to land. It turned out to be Italy. Uh, after he landed, he was going to be headed for combat, but it wasn't an easy trip over there. Talk about that submarine trip across the Atlantic. Well, to begin with, it wasn't a submarine trip. It was, uh, they were on a troop ship. Okay. Uh, and it was, it was, it was actually a, uh, uh, a converted luxury liner. Uh, the the War Department at the time had had uh, uh, the ability to confiscate uh, large large craft, and um, th- this was one of the the luxury liners they converted to uh, into troop ships. And this this but there was there was an engagement with submarines. I'm not totally off my rocker, correct? Now, I was getting to that. Okay. Okay. The. Um, so the, this, this particular troop ship had made 16 passages back and forth between America and, and Europe and, and a couple of other locations. Um, and so if you, if you can think about this, the, 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 uh, the regiment loaded up onto the troop ship. They had been uh, in, they, they went through Camp Tacoa for their boot camp and their, their uh, uh, parachute training. Um, and, and basically had trained together for a whole year uh, before they got on the ship. And then, so it, by this time, they were anxious to, to get into the fight. They were eager. They were, they were excited to get on the ship and get out of the country and, and get overseas. And so you take uh, a troop ship with, with thousands of, of, of men and pack them basically to the gills yeah. Um, so that, that uh, you can get you, the most number of men over there on, on one boat. Well, in the process of, of crossing the North Atlantic, you, you have to run through 
um, the U-boat uh, uh, wolf pack uh, ring, which was the, the Nazi uh, submarine. There you go, the submarine. Okay. Um, the, the submarine um, uh, wolf pack was, was basically, it was a, uh, there, were, there were a series of, of submarines that, that hunted together and they specifically hunted uh, these convoys that were going over the North Atlantic to bring troops and equipment into, into the European theater. So um, they had to, their, their uh, ship's crew had to, to be on constant alert for submarine sightings and, and torpedo sightings and, and try to figure out how to navigate and maneuver their way through that. Um, but not only the submarines under the water, but, um, but once they got closer to, to land, um, the uh, uh, German uh, Luftwaffe uh, Air Force uh, would fly in and, and, and try to dive bomb uh, the ships. So they were being attacked from below as, as well as above. Um, so there was, there was a constant uh, series of attacks as they got into that, that North Atlantic uh, waterway uh, shipping lane. Uh, and, and so, you know, they, sometimes the convoys lost ships, sometimes um, they didn't. Um, it, was, it was really a luck of the draw kind of a thing. And then uh, once they got into, uh, once they got closer to the Straits of Gibraltar, uh, then they had mines to deal with. Mm. Um, there was one, one incident where uh, a crewman uh, got his rifle out and he was going to uh, shoot a mine that was floating near the ship uh, as they were passing through the Straits of Gibraltar. And he was called off because the, the mine itself was too close to the ship. So if he would have exploded it, it could have uh, tore a hole in the, in the hull of the ship. So, the, so they, they passed through Straits of Gibraltar, they got into, into the Mediterranean, and it wasn't until they, they got to the Mediterranean that it became clear that they were going to Italy. Uh, up until that point in time, most of the men on the ship didn't know where they were going. Um, so they, they, uh, they docked north of Rome, um, and they were, uh, they were, they were offloading, uh, their men and, and, uh, all they had with them was, were, were uh, small arms. They're, you know, what they could carry on their backs basically, because all the heavy equipment was coming over in a second ship and, and that ship was farther behind them. Um, so it was, it was a few days out. Uh, and once the regiment landed, they were given orders immediately to, to uh, go join uh, another unit and, and, and get into combat right away. Um, but the, the colonel uh, informed his, his commander that um, they were ill-equipped to do that because their heavy equipment still hadn't arrived. So, so they, were, uh, they were given a reprieve and... and uh, um, sent on a bivouac, basically, to uh, a, an area that was uh, um, uh, intended to, to give them some R&R &R and let them relax a little bit while they waited for their, their equipment to catch up. Now, so Italy, not long after that. I was going to say, Italy was, Italy was part of the enemy, but uh, I guess the Allied troops had pretty much secured uh, Italy at that point? Um, the... the um, Landing at Anzio had taken place 
I think six months before this, and they um, so the Allies had had just won that battle at Anzio, and uh -huh. and um, it's the Italian army had capitulated at that point. So all that was left to to uh, oppose them uh, was in June of, of 1944 was um, the German army, yeah. and they were they were in the process of retreating up towards the Alps. Um, so the, the, uh, uh, when, by the time the 517th, uh, parachute, um, infantry regiment, uh, arrived there, um, the only enemy was, was the, the German army and they were in retreat. So shortly after they got their, their equipment, um, they were sent out on a boat again, uh, to, to travel up the coast. Uh, for about another day, and um, uh, they landed on on a beach unopposed, and they were uh, they were assigned to to join what was known uh, collectively known as the Texas Army, which was a, a National Guard unit uh, from from Texas, and um, uh, so they had their first fifteen days of battle in in northern Italy. Uh, and uh, as that battle was raging and they were pushing the Germans out up north, um, Gordon's unit, uh, his regiment was pulled out of the battle line. They were, they were brought back to, to the rear and reassigned to um, uh, get engaged in what became known as Operation Dragoon, which was the invasion of southern France. The, the detail that you're giving us now, it, it pales in comparison to, to the detail in the book. And so I, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this, but people who are interested in military history, uh, even if you don't want to read about a specific person, uh, you're, in this case, your cousin, Gordon Lippman, uh, the detail of, that is available in this book is definitely, uh, definitely worth reading. Um, the, the next story, the next uh, one, next battle that I want to talk about is jump, the jump into Southern France. Uh, that's part of Operation Dragoon. And the fact that I don't remember exactly how many you do, I'm sure uh, the number of, of people that were supposed to, number of troops that were supposed to jump into Southern France and hit a certain target uh, missed that target. Just tell, tell that story a little bit. So they had flying from from Italy across the the sea to to southern France. They had um, can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but but something like six hundred aircraft of of troop ships. Um, and, and if you figure, there's about 20, uh, 20 soldiers in a in a uh, uh, a, a jump plane, roughly twenty soldiers in a, in a jump plane. Um, in total, they had somewhere just over 9,000 paratroopers that were jumping, and these were Americans, British, um, and Canadians. And then, um, and then the French came in on the, the land invasion. Um, and uh, so the, the, uh, uh, the operation took off early in the morning, so it was dark. They had pathfinders that were that had gone out ahead of, of, of schedule uh, to and their job was to, to light the, the landing zones so that the pilots could could see where they they were going to drop their their loads. Um, and just about every 
every group that jumped uh, on that day uh, ended up about 20 miles off target. Um, so they had, they had men scattered all over Southern France. Um, and, um, there were some interesting stories. They had, they, they, uh, also went in early and, and dropped decoys, uh, which were mocked up little toy soldiers, um, that, uh, would, uh, were, were rigged to, uh, uh, make noise when they hit the ground. And, and that was all intended to, to be a, a deception. And, and get the Germans focused over in this direction while the, the, the real paratroopers were jumping over here. And so uh, there was a lot of commotion. There's a lot of planning and strategy going into this. And, and that's another thing about reading up on this history. It was yeah. just learning about all of the detail that goes into planning that kind of an event. Um, and and you, you, you wonder how anything went right because so many things went wrong. Um, and I think the same thing happened in, uh, on D-Day in, in Normandy. Uh, but, but there was such an overwhelming presence of, of allied force there that they were able to overcome those mistakes. And the same thing happened in Southern France. Um, so they, um, uh, Gordon's unit uh, jumped and, and, and they were scattered all over the countryside. Um, when, when he gathered his, his guys and they started looking for their appointed rally point, um, he was, um, he, he met up with the, the executive officer of his unit and, and his executive officer said, come with me and help me on my, my mission and my, my objective. Um, and so he got redirected and, and, and they went in a different direction. Uh, before they could finally end up with uh, meeting up with the rest of their unit in uh, at their appointed place, um, but it was uh, it, I, I can imagine you know not having been in combat. I can imagine all the chaos that ensues when you jump out of a plane in the middle of the night and and uh, people start shooting at you, um, and and once you finally hit the ground, then you got to figure out where you are in the dark in a place you've never been before. Uh, and, you know, Gordon at this time was 19 years old. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, he was 19 years old. Um, and he was uh, the platoon sergeant for his uh, uh, machine gun platoon. So as a 19 year old, if you can imagine this, he had to figure out where his guys were uh, how he was going to get a hold of, or how he was going to locate the guys that he that that weren't right there with him, and then read a map on a on a uh, uh, unfamiliar terrain and try to figure out how to find his rally point. Uh, all the while they're they're you know engaging with the the enemy, um, and uh, uh, it's just amazing. Just uh, the whole thing is is fascinating to me. It's interesting. This is a, a sports show. And so we'll, I'll keep trying to bring it back to sports. It's like game planning against, um, the, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers and showing up to the stadium and finding out that you're not only not playing the Steelers, you're not playing football. You're playing, you're, you have to game plan. All of a sudden you're playing the New York Yankees uh, who are throwing fastballs at you when you were prepared for football. And, and by the way, the field is different. 
and they didn't turn the lights on for the game. <laughs> I mean, the, and, and, and here's this rookie leading this veteran troop, and he not only defeated the Yankees in the dark, but he went back later and defeated the Steelers as well because, I, I mean, I can't think of an analogy, a sports analogy that would work, but that's about as crazy as it was. The whole time, uh, they're shooting at you from mm-hmm. the stands. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just amazed that, that, um, that they, they got through it all. Um, yeah. I, I was, I was privileged to, to meet one of his, uh, platoon members, uh, George Rumsey. Um, and, and he said, you know, he had nothing but, but high praise for, for Gordon as a, as a leader and as a, as a genuine person. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just a privilege for me to meet him and, and, and be able to, to talk with him about uh, his experience. Um, and, um, you know, he, he said that uh, as he was reading the, the manuscript, he was, he was uh, being reminded of things that he knew back then but had forgotten. Another story I want to, or another famous battle in World War II that Gordon was part of that I want you to tell, uh, and that's the Battle of the Bulge. Tell about his involvement in the Battle of the Bulge. Well, after they, um, after they uh, secured their objectives in southern France, they were in southern France for about three months, uh, August, September, October, um, and beginning of November. Um, and um, they were pulled off the line again because the, the uh, uh, Operation Dragoon objective had been achieved. And they, were, they were pushing the Germans up into the Alps um, and out of France. Um, so they took the 517th and, and uh, put them on a rail car and shipped them off to um, Soissons, uh, which is in northern France. And they, there they had two or three weeks of, of uh, rest and relaxation. They were able to, to refit, uh, you know, fix the equipment that, that was broken and, and get replacements, um, replacements of equipment as well as, as uh, troop replacements. And um, the uh, uh, and they they got you know R and R they got there was a, a USO there they you know they they got to drink beer and have hot showers and eat eat, eat hot food and um, around the nineteenth of of uh, December uh, the Allies weren't expecting the Germans to do what they did um, the uh, General Eisenhower had been. Um, convinced to uh, uh, conduct this this campaign called Market Garden um, up in in Holland, and and the uh, the objective of that program was to to uh, get through Holland and, and and enter Germany from the north. Well, that turned out to be um, somewhat less than than uh, uh, successful. Uh, but at the time that they were doing that. The Allies were were shifting their resources to Market Garden, and and so the whole battlefront in France was um, minimally uh, defended. Uh, when you go down, when you when you look at that whole uh, nine hundred mile uh, battlefront, Eastern Front, 
um, the the Americans, the Allies, weren't really expecting the Germans to come back because they they had had literally pushed the Germans from the the Atlantic coast into Germany in in a matter of a month, um, and uh, and that was unexpected. They they did that a lot quicker than they had anticipated. So. So when the Germans uh, mounted their counteroffensive and came through um, the Ardennes forest um, along that 900 mile front, um, the, the Americans were taken by surprise. They're, the the uh, senior planners were completely caught off guard. And, and um, so the most famous battle of, of the Battle of the Bulge was at Bastogne. And that's where Easy Company uh, camped out and hunkered down, and, and you know if you uh, if you watch the the uh, HBO series The Band of Brothers, that that does a a, a pretty good piece of of uh, storytelling about how they were uh, defending their foxholes and and um, you know trying to to hold that line there in Bastogne. Well, uh, Eisenhower at the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge realized that that what he needed to do was plug gaps so he he started assigning units to to plug the gaps and and his objective was to plug the gaps north of Bastogne and then have um, have the army uh, come in uh, from the south and and push the Germans out um, well that that army happened to be Patton's third army and and anybody who follows the World War II or, or knows anything about the Battle of the Bulge knows that that uh, Patton's third army was like the cavalry coming to the rescue um, and and they they accomplished their objective in, in, in fine fashion. Well before all that happened uh, there was a, a hole north of Bastogne uh, along the the Soyhotten Road. And Houghton is is a Belgian town that's that's right on the river. There's some of it on the on the Belgian side and some of it on the on the east side of the river. And um, so the the unit Gordon was in was assigned to to go rescue elements of the of, um, uh, escapes me now. But there was a, a, a there was an armored division unit uh, that was surrounded in Houghton. So their assignment was was to go rescue this this armored division unit, um, and uh, the uh, the only Medal of Honor winner of of the of, of Gordon's unit of the 517th um, won his his medal uh, by his actions in that particular engagement. He was actually at the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, Bud Biddle was was actually in France on the coast. He had already turned in his equipment, and he was was just waiting for his ride home. He already he had enough points to get out. And and uh, when the Battle of the Bulge erupted, um, everybody who was 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 getting ready to get out and go home was was redirected and sent back into battle. So uh, he was, uh, Bud Biddle was a, was a scout. He was a point scout. Uh, and his job was to go out on his own or, you know, by himself and, and seek out the enemy and look for weaknesses in the enemy lines. And, uh, and through his actions and his courage in that uh, particular engagement, 
they awarded him the Medal of Honor. Uh, Gordon's unit was fighting right alongside Bud Biddle uh, in, in his job. He, uh, as I said earlier, he was a, a platoon sergeant for a, a machine gun platoon. Um, and uh, um, their job was, was to enter into Houghton uh, and uh, uh, force the Germans to, to retreat, either put up and fight or retreat out and, and get out of town. Um, that engagement was the one that, that won him his first battlefield commission. Uh, so uh, then at the age of 20, he was a, a second lieutenant, um, hadn't yet graduated from high school, uh, still leading grown men uh, against battle-hardened uh, German soldiers. Um, just an amazing story. In the interest of time, I want, to, I want to zoom forward a few years, and we're now in Korea. And to me, the most intriguing story of that is not only was he leading a, basically an all-Black unit as a white man and, and receiving great credit for that from those, from those Black troopers uh, that were part of that, but the, the most intriguing story was when they were crossing uh, the, uh, the uh, Hanton River. In Korea, I think that's how it would be. Hantan. Hantan River in Korea. And uh, instead of being behind his group and seeing where they might need support, he was out front of them. He was leading them. He crossed the river and was engaged the engaging with the enemy. And he simply ran out of ammo. And so he threw his, uh, <laughs> threw his rations uh at the yeah. at the enemy to distract them, so his the rest of his his platoon, the rest of his company could come there and win that battle. Tell that story. So when when they were uh, assigned to cross the river, the the engineers were supposed to have a bridge put up, uh, a river bridge put up, so that they could cross quickly and and uh, as quietly as possible. Well, by the time they got there, they realized that the that whoever specked out the the, the river for the bridge uh, uh, misread it, and and they didn't have the uh, the right uh, gear there. So um, Gordon's company had to to cross the river through the river, uh, walk through the river, and and by doing that, it alerted the the enemy machine gun nests uh, that were up on the, the top of this hill. Uh, so by the time they, uh, the first element started getting across the river, they come up, came under fire from, uh, I think, three different machine gun nests. Um, and uh, Gordon at the time was, was not in the lead unit. Um, he was in the, in, in the middle of, of the company. But he realized that the, that the platoon that was, was in the lead was, was getting pinned down. And if they didn't, uh, breakthrough, then it, it would spell out disaster for the whole company. So he, he ran to the front and, and led that platoon uh, up the, the hill. There were in this, in this hilly area, there were, there were fingers that they could, they could, um, they could run up, up the, this finger, this little uh, in, indented ridge without being seen and, and make progress uh, a, a little at a time mm -hmm. uh, before the, the enemy would engage them. So 
um, he he formulated a plan on, on quickly on how to do that uh, and how to get them up the hill so that, that more guys could come across. And then he realized that that they were all getting pinned down again, and and uh, it occurred to him that that they were not going to make any progress and they weren't going to make their objective unless they were able to, to break out somehow. So he, he disconnected himself from the main body and, and, um, uh, ran up on, on the side and, and was attacking the, uh, the machine gun nest by himself. Uh, when he ran out of grenades and when he, when he ran out of ammunition, uh, as you said, he he uh, started throwing his sea rats at the at the machine gunners. The it, it's a comical thing to think about, but um, you know he was doing it out of survival, and and it, it his whole his whole idea was to distract the machine gunners so that his troops could get up the hill, and uh, so he distracted the machine gunners enough. Uh, they were concentrating their fire on him because he was the farthest one up. Um, that that his troops were able to to uh, climb the hill and, and eventually overtake the machine gun nest. Gordon got wounded in that engagement, and and he, as it was written up in his his commendation, Silver Star commendation, uh, he refused to leave the battlefield until uh, his company was secured in a in a defensive posture. Um, so you know, I, I mean, let, just, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt you. That. It's it's easy to tell that story. You've done such a great job in the book and you're doing it now as well. It's easy to tell the story just kind of matter of factly. He ran out of ammo, so he threw his sea rations at the uh, at the enemy. You know, here he is a commander. I mean, he was a, he was a major at that point or, or at least a captain at that point. He was he was a lieutenant at that. Point. Oh, OK. Uh, so he but he was he was he was in charge. And yet he was sac- basically sacrificing his own safety for the good of the of the rest of the group. And I, I, I think it would be really easy to gloss over that. And that's one of the reasons this book intrigued me so much and, and inspired me so much is, is the idea of servant leadership. He was willing to give up himself to lead uh, the rest of his, uh, his platoon. So just as we finish up with this particular story, just talk about that side of him that you may not have known until you did the research on the battles that he was part of. Oh, absolutely. He, you know, uh, the right thing is, is sometimes very hard and, and his, his uh, attitude about, about life and about his, his uh, military career was to do the right thing, even though it was hard. So in that particular instance, you know, he was willing to, do what needed to be done for the better uh, betterment of his unit rather than his own personal safety. Um, that was the man that, that that's the man that uh, has been spoken about by his uh, contemporaries. Um, he was written about in uh, by his uh, executive officer in uh, uh, Korea in a book called um, with the black platoon in combat. Um, and uh, that's that's what Lyle Rochelle uh, continued to say about him. Uh, he was highly respected uh, by everybody uh, that served with him. Um, he was a good leader. He was inspiring. Um, 
he he you know as you as you said he he was a servant leader and and uh you know people like that are not um they're not a dime a dozen they're 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 rare and, and uh uh, to find somebody like that who's willing to, you know, put their own safety at risk um, so that his his uh, company would survive and, and achieve their goals, um, that's that's saying a lot about him. You, you use a term or, or a phrase a lot in the book, where does America get such gallant men? And I'm sure that's something that came to mind as you were reading about some of these some of these battles. I want to I want to finish with one more, and then I'm going to give you a chance to tell stories that we haven't uh, that I haven't asked about the the, the his final battle, his final uh, engagement. Um, again, he was he could have easily at this point he's a lieutenant colonel. He's in Vietnam, and he's in a compound that was kind of a, a way station, kind of a place where people would come back to launch their next engagement or whatever. And that there was there were some shots, some sniper shots. And instead of sending one of his one of his men out to investigate, he went out himself, and that's where he ended up uh, being mortally wounded. Just talk about so, that. Yeah, he. Um, this was in the the uh, brigade compound. Um, they were headquartered northwest of Saigon, about a, about a dozen miles northwest of Saigon, and their job. Uh, the Third Brigade, First Infantry Division. Their job was to protect um, traffic on Highway 13, which was a, a major highway that ran northwest from Saigon up into Laos or Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the the Third Brigade's job was um, to uh, provide protection for South Vietnamese and American. Uh, combat units that would would traverse that highway north, going north and coming back south. Um, so uh, the the compound itself was on the the uh, Michelin uh, rubber plant plantation, and um, they uh, they had a sign over the gate that that said "Welcome to Rocket City." Um, they would typically take on take in about seventy five. Uh, mortar rounds a night. Um, if you can think about living in a tent or living in, even living in a hooch uh, and, and getting bombarded with that much ordnance every night, uh, it's got to be unnerving. You, you, you don't know where you're really safest. Um, and, um, and they would also, in, in uh, conjunction with these uh, rocket attacks, they would also uh, have snipers that would take pot shots at, at people moving around inside the compound. Um, they found out uh, long after uh, this engagement, uh, a couple years later, they found out that that uh, the Viet Cong had a whole um, uh, a whole city of tunnels dug underneath this plantation. Um, they didn't know it at the time in 1965, but they found out later. Uh, so these Viet Cong would pop up out of the out of these tunnels and and uh, attack the the uh, compound and then disappear into the into the jungle and and nobody knew where they went. And then come, they'd come back out the next night. So the uh, Gordon's Colonel Colonel Broadback would have a a dinner every night in his. Uh, in his headquarters, 
and uh, he would have his um, his direct reports uh, join him for dinner, and they would uh, they would typically uh, invite uh, uh, some guys from from the the uh, uh, lower ranks to join them on on occasion, um, possibly for you know they they had a conversation that they needed to engage a, a captain or a major who wouldn't typically be in that dinner, um, and. So they would uh, they would have dinner there and and do their their debriefing for the day and and plans for the next day. So if they had another uh, uh, another um, uh, engagement coming up that they they were going to go on the attack, they they would start talking about it there. So um, that uh, that particular night there was uh, there was an attack on the compound. Um, the, uh, uh, the gentleman that, that spoke to me about it, Jay France, was, was a captain at the time, and he was invited by Gordon to attend the, the dinner. Um, and uh, uh, he said that the attack had gone on longer than normal. So I, I guess after a while, you get used to it and sure. you figure, you know, it's going to last five minutes and then it's going to be over and uh, then I can go take my shower or whatever. Um, but he... Um, Colonel Lippman had, had, uh, was getting concerned about it. So he, he excused himself from the table and said he was going to go check on the boys. Um, the boys being Colonel Broadbeck's personal guard, which were MPs, uh, a unit of MPs. Um, and moments after he left the, the, uh, the hut to, to go check on the, the MPs, um, they heard somebody yell that the, the Colonel's been shot. So um, they, uh, everybody in, the, in the, the building scrambled to go outside and, and, and uh, um, do what they could do to, to help in the situation. Jay France was, was one of the first ones out of the, out of the hutch because he still had his, his web gear on. He, still, he was still dressed for, for the field. And uh, uh, he said when he got to him, um, uh, Gordon had been wounded in the, in the abdomen. Um, and, uh, uh, they, 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 by chance had a, a medevac helicopter that was sitting on the, on the, the helipad, uh, at the brigade. And normally that helicopter would, would go back to Saigon at night uh, to a, a larger compound in, in Saigon. But for whatever reason, the pilot decided to, to stay overnight in, in, in this compound. So it was fortunate that that the helicopter was there. They they could load Gordon onto the helicopter and and then uh, have him medevaced out quickly. Uh, unfortunately, his wounds were severe enough that uh, he didn't make it. Uh, but uh, amazing, just uh, uh, incredible. They uh, they renamed the the compound in honor of Gordon. So it was uh, it was renamed Gordon Gordon J Lippman. Um, uh, compound uh, after he passed. I, I, I want to move on to a couple of other questions, but are there any stories from the book that, that I didn't address? I, I tried to be thorough. Uh, are there any other stories that you want to share with our listeners today? Sure. There's, um, we talked about combat a lot. There's, there's a human interest story here too. Um, um, at the beginning of the book, I talk about uh, where Gordon was born, where he grew up in, in the, the high plains of South Dakota. Um, there's, there's some um, 
documentation that, that speaks to his his high school years and and uh, his uh, uh, exploits in on the um, athletic field as well as in the in, in theater and, and as a journalist. Um, and then uh, he also he was also a loving father and husband. Um, uh, his wife Lucille was unable to uh, 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 to give birth, so they adopted three uh, German kids in uh, the late fifties, um, two boys and a girl. Uh, they were actually they were going to they were going to adopt a boy and a girl. And they found out that the boy had a had a brother, uh, so they didn't want to split up the brothers. So they adopted uh, all three of them, um, and they raised them as their own. Um, and uh, there is a story that that's told by Mike, uh, one of the sons, that uh, when they were in um, uh, Kansas, when when Gordon was stationed at Fort Riley before he left for for Vietnam. Um, they were at a, at a local lake and uh, Gordon was, was uh, uh, on the shore uh, reading something and, and the, the kids were in the water playing, you know, as, as um, you know, nine, 10 year old kids would play, um, having, having a great time. And Mike was on a float, um, relaxing and, and, and somewhat sleeping. And his brother Mark uh, swam up underneath the float and tipped him over, um, and of course that caused a lot of commotion, right? And uh, so the the as the story goes, uh, Gordon uh, was was uh, found running down the dock at full sprint uh, with all of his clothes on, watch, wallet, everything. Um, dove into the into the water to to save his son uh even in and mike says you know i i kept yelling that i'm okay i'm okay and and uh you know that didn't deter dad he he went after his son to save him um, it's such a great story I think, I, Go now i was just going to say I, I i think mike's uh, swimming activities were curtailed for the rest of the summer <laughs> All right. Um, two quick questions about the book before we wrap up. Why should former and, and by the way, you you will when you pick up this book, plan on spending a few hours because you will not be able to put it down. Why should former and current members of the armed forces appreciate this book? Well, you know, I uh, um, I, I can best answer that by reading a review that was written by uh, a retired Lieutenant Colonel. Um, I've, I've got nine or 10 people that have, have written endorsements on the book. Um, and um, I'll, I'll just read part of his, his review. He says, this recipient of the Distinguished Service Cross was ever present as a warrior leader and equally important as a follower who carried out the orders of his superiors. Yes, Gordon Lippman was the kind of soldier we aspire to be. I recommend this book to anyone interested in becoming a soldier leader. That's your answer. There you go. That's no need to expand on that. So someone who's not interested in being a soldier, why should someone who is never in the military and has no interest, why would they be inspired by the story? It's, it's a story about leadership, courage, um, doing the right thing, following through on your commitments. Um, 
making sure that that uh, um, making sure that that what you do is is done well. Um, so the, I think you know it's it it is a story on on leadership. It is a book about leadership, and and uh, you know there's there are, are stories throughout the, the book on on courage and and uh, responsibility. All right. Excuse me. Where where can people find the book? So you can go to my website uh, www.holdtheline.press. Uh, you can get it in fine bookstores everywhere. You can get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, it's, it's available to be purchased now or, or pre-ordered now. Um, I think we're, we're taping this before the release date, uh, which is October 22nd. Um, but, uh, it, it, it is available as we speak. People can go to the bookstores and and see it it will be out very shortly <clears throat> if it's not in your bookstore now it will be soon uh and i encourage people to to pick it up rob i always like to wrap up the podcast with a couple of things first tell about your family your your wife and your kids and, <clears throat> and even a little bit about your your military experience if you want um i'd rather talk about my wife and my kids um, <laughs> My wife and I have, have been married uh, for 40, 40 years, um, and uh, uh, we, have th- uh, we have four children, um, six grandchildren, and, and a pair of twins on the way. Um, my, uh, uh, my oldest son lives in, in California. Uh, the next one lives in, in uh, here in Kansas. Uh, uh, he uh, spent ten years in the Marine Corps uh, and, and retired out of there. Um, and my daughter is, is on the East Coast, and, and my younger son is on the West Coast, and uh, we're, we're scattered to the four winds. Um, but uh, um, love my family. I, uh, um, I'm very appreciative of the fact that that uh, uh, I'm privileged to be their their father and and uh, husband and my wife. And then I always like to wrap up with this. We've talked a lot about legacy with Gordon, uh, being a servant leader, and all those things that we we complement. That you know, a, a chapter in the book by itself just of the commendations that he earned. Um, but I want to ask you, what's your legacy? Well, I, I hope people would say that um, uh, that uh, they know I'm a, a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of Him. Um, that I love my family, love my wife and, and my children and grandchildren, and um, that I always try to leave a place better uh, than I found it. That's a great answer. Well, Rob, it's good to good to catch up with you. Uh, I know this book is going to be successful. Uh, I can't encourage people enough uh, to pick it up, to buy it, to share it. Buy one for yourself. Buy one for the your neighbor who is a who is a veteran, and then buy one other because you may know you may run into somebody who needs a copy. But uh, thank you for joining us tonight, and uh, you got you have a great day. Thank you. You do the same. Appreciate it, David. 
Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.